Hello, good evening. Thank you all for coming. Uh, we should probably get started now. And um, uh, My name is Elliot Green. I'm lecturer in international development uh, in the Department of International Development here at the LSE. Uh, this is a Department of International Development public lecture. It is sponsored by the Social Trends Institute uh, in Barcelona. And the event today is that we're going, to, uh, we're going to be talking about the title of Whether the Child, the Causes and Consequences of Low Fertility in the West and East Asia. The official uh, uh, event here is to launch this book, which has the same title, edited by Eric Kaufman, who is to my right, and W. Bradford Wilcox, who's not, not here today. Um, but the speakers will be as such. Uh, in order, uh, Carlos Cavalli, who is the director of the Social Trends Institute, uh, holds a PhD in engineering and is professor emeritus of strategy at IESE Business School, University of Nevada in Spain. Uh, then uh, Eric Kaufmann, who is professor of, uh, of sociology at Birkbeck University of London and editor of one of the co-editors of the book I just mentioned. And then uh, Stuart Baston will speak. Stuart is uh, ESRC fellow in demography and social policy in the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. Catherine Hakim is professor at the Center of Policy Studies and was formerly a senior research fellow here at the LSE. And lastly, uh, John Parker, who is the globalization editor at The Economist magazine. And after all that, we will have questions and answers and then go to the wine reception afterwards, which you will be rewarded for uh, sitting here on a very cold and wintry uh, March evening. Um, but without further ado, I'll hand it over then to uh, Carlos Cavalli. Thank, thank you. you. Well, good evening, and thank you for the warm reception, and uh, thank you for this fantastic uh, uh, event that we are going to have after the meeting. But let me talk to about the meeting first. Uh, let me tell you that on behalf of the Social Trends Institute, of which I am the founder and the president, and on behalf of the people sitting in the back, Tracy O'Donnell, she's the managing director of uh, uh, of uh, so the Social Trends Institute and Craig Eflin right there. Uh, he, for a number of years, was uh, helping us as a research, uh, research assistant, and now he's getting his PhD in Notre Dame on philosophy and theology, something like this, okay? So on behalf of all of us and the rest of the people at the Social Trends Institute, thank you for being here tonight. Well, uh, I would like to thank also all the speakers here. I'm not going to name all of them because you have, they have already been introduced. And also, but I will have a... Uh, I would like to refer as well to Brad Wilcox. Brad, Brad Wilcox, Professor Ralph, Brad, Brad Wilcox from Virginia University was the one that helped us at the beginning to put together this meeting and he was the one that mostly invited most of you I believe and therefore I believe that he followed the project up to the very end until you and someone else edited the book, right? With him, as I believe, as well. Thank you very much. Let me tell you a few words about the Social Trends Institute. It's very simple and very brief. Because we are very young. We are 10 years of age. Well, not me, I mean the Social Trends Institute, 10 years of age. It was founded in 2003. And um, is based not in Barcelona, it is based in New York. We operate in various countries in the world, in the places where we are having the experts meeting, the one that we had happened to be in Barcelona, because in Barcelona we have an office as well. I have to take advantage of the facilities that my former business school, of which I was the dean for 20 years, which was a long time for, not for me, for the faculty, uh, then I have to take advantage of this. And we produce reports 
in different languages, in English, in French, in German, in Italian. We have translation in different languages. Uh, we want to be, we are, I believe, global, international, uh, because we have a, a mission statement which is in itself international. What we want to do is to understand. The social transition is about understanding. It's about understanding what? About understanding the major trends that are changing the world today. Because we believe that understanding comes first of everything else before action. And this is what we have been doing so far. Uh, meeting, putting together a number of experts, as it happened with this meeting that we are talking about, about demography, and asking them to look at the problem from an interdisciplinary perspective and an inter international perspective. And this is the essence of the Social Trends Institute. Uh, the subject of interest of the Social, inst Social Trends Institute go from something like family and, and, family and marriage to uh, bioethics and biotechnology, go to also to culture and lifestyles, we go to corporate governance so far, but in we include also demographics as it is the case today. So thank you very much for those that have participated in this big project, of which we have now two outputs. The first output that we had from the conference in Barcelona was uh, a preliminary report which is, has been called the Sustainable Demographic Dividend. Perhaps you have read it. It is accessible. I recommend it to you. It's very short. It's very short. It is about 50 pages. It has lots of graphs, etc., to better understand what is what the so-called demographic dividend. This was done in English and in Spanish and has been distributed and presented in various places like this around the world. So this has been a very good, and the idea of this report was taking advantage of all the debates that we had here is to show how these uh, low fertility rates below the average, below the sustainability <coughs> level are affecting substantially individuals, society, but also the economy in terms of viability, for example, of the uh, welfare state. In Spain and in Italy and in, in France, it is affecting the retirement age. Just to give you a few examples before, it, it is something very important. And this report shows some of these impacts. The second output, obviously, was this book that we are going to, uh, to have later on at the, at the end of this meeting. And I believe that it's thanks to the level, professional level of all the participants, some of them are here in the first row, uh, then uh, I think that the results have been excellent. And we as a social trans institute are very proud of this, of, of, this, of, this, of this production. And just one final remark. The final remark is that the social trans institute continues to be interested in this business of demographics and this business of fertility and everything that is related to it because it's here to stay for a long time. You know, the, the problem is increasing, it's getting bigger, especially after the, the world economic, financial and economic crisis. It is getting, making, and we don't see in the, in the visible future solutions that can uh, change the trend. And there are things that have to be done. So we need f further understanding of the things that are going on, that are happening, and why they are happening. So we will continue to be interested in this field, and we will continue to support experts' meetings to understand better the different problems and to publish them and disseminate them, as we have done with the other uh, uh, reports before, uh, in different languages, whatever it is. Well, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.
Well, thank you, Carlos, and we are very appreciative for the support of the Social Trends Institute. I also want to acknowledge as well uh, Brad Wilcox's contribution, uh, who really was the driving force in, in um, getting the book together, and I co-edited co with him. It was very good to work with. Um, so low fertility, uh, which is going to be the subject of, of what we're going to be speaking about today. Now, there is a question, you know, how do we get to low fertility? It doesn't, we don't just snap our fingers and suddenly we're in a low fertility world. Low fertility, we have to get there. And really it's about the path to getting there. That's what's important for me. And that is to say, some countries, some ethnic groups, some religions are going to get to, through their demographic transition, quicker, more dramatically than others. And it's this unevenness of that transition between countries. In China clearly going through it earlier and faster than India, for example. Between ethnic groups, so Protestants in Northern Ireland going through the eth demographic transition, arguably 80 years ahead of the Catholics. Uh, between religions, Protestants first, then Catholics, then Muslims. These differences between groups in, in the timing and the, the speed at which they enter the demographic transition has political consequences. That's what I'm interested in as a political demographer. Um, and I, I've also edited another book called Political Demography, which explores these in more detail. In the book, uh, I talk a lot about the trends as they impact religion. So we can understand how differences in growth rates between different ethnic groups matter. Uh, Lebanon, Northern Ireland, even the increase of the Hispanic population in the United States or of uh, minorities in Europe, um, Muslims in Europe. This is something that we understand, these ethnic shifts, and we understand that they matter, especially when voting takes place on ethnic lines uh, or militaries are organized on ethnic lines. Numbers count, especially in democracies, one person, one vote, more people, more votes. That's the equation that political demographers are interested in. Uh, my chapter looks a lot at religion. Now, we can say, when we talk about the uh, demography of religion, why does low fertility matter? Well, it could matter because, let's say, Christians have low fertility first, or Protestants have low fertility first, and Catholics are a bit behind, so therefore, Catholic numbers grow vis-a-vis -vis Protestant which is what happened in Northern Ireland and is connected to this, the violence in Northern Ireland after 1969. I can talk about that later. Uh, but the, the issue that I'm concerned with is not so much the differences in fertility between faith traditions. So yes, it is true that Muslims in Europe have higher fertility than Christians in Europe. Yes, that is absolutely true. And it is politically significant and will be for uh, decades to come. However, we also know that just as Catholic fertility was very high and converged with Protestant fertility, so too Muslim fertility has come down dramatically in the last particularly 10 years, actually. And there's been some interesting uh, work that's been done. Nick Eberstadt at the American Enterprise Institute, for example, who's written about this um, dramatic decline of the baby bust in the Muslim world is quite interesting. Um, so you have a kind of convergence then between major faith traditions, Islam, uh, Catholics, Protestants, and arguably between ethnic groups. However, what I'm interested in is differences in fertility within religions, fundamentalists versus moderates versus seculars. Those differences, I argue, are much more enduring than the differences between, say, Muslims and Christians or Catholics and Protestants. Because what's distinct about 
those differences is they're rooted in theology. Beliefs about women's roles, beliefs about pronatalism. Um, and so, for example, the injunction, someone who's fundamentalist about the faith would take the injunction to go forth and multiply, for example, in the Christian tradition. So the, the quiverful movement, a neo-Calvinist uh, offshoot in the United States, would take that injunction much more seriously than an Episcopalian. Or looking on the Jewish side where the, the differences are very dramatic, the ultra-Orthodox would, would uh, for example, have a very different conception of the role of women um, than would uh, secular Jews, which is one of the reasons why the ultra-Orthodox have a three to four times higher birth rate than secular Jews. And in fact, in the US and in Britain, some of the projections suggest that amongst observant Jews, a majority will be ultra-Orthodox in the second half of this century. That suggests just how rapidly um, some of these dynamics can affect society and politics. That's kind of what I'm interested in when we talk about consequences of low fertility, because there has been a lot of work done on causes of low fertility, although very technical. And in a way, I think our contributors, nice, particularly Alicia Atsera, nicely brings together and summarizes a lot of the research on this question of causes of low fertility. What I'm talking about here, though, is one important consequence, which is that it leads to unevenness in growth rates between groups, which has political consequences, and especially with regard to religion. Um, I'm going to be brief here. Last two points, and that is that our time, why now? Why is this an important subject now? Why has it not been addressed by uh, academia in any uh, substantial way until now. Well, I think it's important partly because we're going through a what I would term a demographic revolution. That is, we've never been in a world where, um, let's just, we take Western Europe, for example, where we might have societies with over 40% of the population over age 60. Uh, we haven't seen that before. That's revolutionary. And the world is moving in that direction. But at the same time, we have about 60 or 65 very young countries, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Afghanistan, a number of countries in West Asia where fertility rates are still very high. Uh, and so we have a very young, dramatically growing, still population expanding or exploding, if you like, developing world, even though fertility is now coming down, and an aging West with relatively declining uh, low fertility, East Asia likewise. So the differences between then the developed world and the developing world are very stark in terms of fertility. They're also stark, by the way, in terms of religion. So the religious parts of the world are the developing parts of the world. The West and East Asia, which are the most secular parts of the world, have the low fertility. What that means is that almost all of the world's population growth is taking place in the religious parts of the world. Number one, the source of immigrants that are going to make up for uh, the aging populations of the West, secular West, are going to be religious as well. So that's going to be the issue of religious immigrants entering into secular societies, which has its own social and political dynamic, which is important. Uh, last point the question of the second demographic transition, and this is the idea that the material reasons for having large families, i.e. children to work the land, um, security in old age, for example, uh, have fallen away. We now have contraception, so people can control their fertility. They have small families. What determines whether you have a large or small family? It's not really economics anymore, much as much as it is values and culture, and so when you have a group such as the ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, or the quiverful movement in the US who believe in pronatalism, who have those strong family values, they're going to have much higher fertility 
than societies where there are a lot of very secular people. And in fact, we can see these gaps, even, for example, between practicing Catholics in Spain and France and secular uh, Spanish and French women. There's about a half-child difference there. So if we compound this over time, that can lead to quite dramatic changes. I'll leave it there, uh, and I'm going to turn it over to Stuart. Uh, hopefully you're... Okay, hello, um, and um, thanks very much uh, for the invitation to be here uh, this evening. Um, of course, uh, being employed by the Economic and Social Research Council, I have to have a PowerPoint. It's part of the grant. It's in the regulations. You'll have to forgive me. Uh, you'll have to forgive me for this. And so, what I'm going to try and do uh, for 10 or so minutes is outline some of the themes in our chapter, but also to talk a little bit more expansively because I, I'm allowed to do that, which is quite nice. Um, and I'm going to talk about what, what happens if we go beyond lowest low fertility and to really think about the idea of what optimal fertility means in, de in developed countries. Now, because as, um, as has been already mentioned, uh, an increasing number of countries have extremely low fertility. Um, and, uh, and I think what's very interesting is, that it's and the point of my talk today is really how we define what we mean by low. What is low fertility? And the theories that we have for in terms of the prediction of future transitions of fertility, I think, are very weak. And they're fundamentally based upon a European experience of rising fertility. But, of course, the reason, the time, and the reason, the, the time period in which we consider it, in, in, particularly in East Asia and Latin America, and the, for, the underlying reasons for low fertility are very different. Um, and in that sense, I think that following the United, the United Nations assumptions, which is built upon a kind of Eurocentric view, I think are fundamentally misguided. But put that out there in that, uh, in that sense. Don't, don't tell the UN. I don't know. I'm not going to get a job there. They won't, they won't want me. Um, and I think that in this sense, that when we consider population policy, because this is where this is really in East Asia in particular, I work on East Asia, and population policy is openly talked about. Um, it strays into family policy, and I think very often it's considered in, in, in very crude and simple terms as almost like a bribe. And particularly when you look at this through a gendered lens, you get a very kind of difficult um, 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 view, I think, of this, which I think Professor Hakim's um, uh, chapter in, in the book really kind of brings out very, very well. And I think one of the reasons when I'm talking about what we mean by low fertility is because as de demographers, but all in, the, in uh, policy makers, the press, we seem to have this obsession with 2.1, with, with the replacement rate, and it's become like a fetish. It's a very strange thing. And because if you're more than 2.1, if you're at 2.2, it's a population explosion. It's going to be awful. If you're below 2.1, we're all going to, you know, there'll be one member of the labour force and millions of pensioners. You know, it, it seems this kind of implosion, explosion discourse, which is profoundly unhelpful, I think. Um, and, you know, in order to do that, I think we really need to understand where this idea of of replacement comes from. And of course, there's a political dimension to this, as, as, as Eric would, would, would certainly argue, that as well as thinking about age, you know, very straight-laced issues of ageing or population stabilisation, we also you know, think about countries and national strength and the, and the extent to which you have your own people reproducing themselves. So there's a very, very strong political narrative running through this. But I want to try and uh, suggest 
and, and empirically maybe even show that 2.1 is not, is not the be-all and end-all. And I saw this as an incredible thing. This is in US, USA Today uh, a couple of weeks ago. As the US birth rate drops, concern for, future, for the future mounts. Uh, the nation's fertility rate has slipped below replacement levels, partly because of the recession and decline in immigration. That's raising concern about the na nation's future. They have a, it's a, it's 1.9. You know, this is a fertility rate of 1.9. I work on Shanghai. In Shanghai, the fertility rate is 0.65. You know, this 1.9 is another world. And actually, having said that, later on in the article, very very small line right at the bottom, Carl Haub top demographer at the Population uh, Reference Bureau says, compared to Europe, Japan and South Korea and, and Taiwan, we're in fine shape. But that's not very interesting. We don't want to put that right at the top. But the, you see, the key message is about the importance of, of replacement. And of course, uh, again, in this political sense, there's very, it, what your optimal fertility is very much depends on where you are, the context that your country is in, the time that it's in. In Iraq in 1986, uh, the fertility rate was 6.4, and this was deemed as being too low. Now, of course, it's clearly very important, very significant reason for this. In Kazakhstan and Gabon, way above replacement, well, above replacement rate, too low. In Canada and Montenegro, 1.6, so not very far below replacement rate, still deemed as being explicitly too low. In France, the fertility rate is 1.9, and they think that's satisfactory, but, they still want to, but fertility wants to be raised. You know, so there's, all, there's this whole issue around these, these, these relatively simple numbers. And when I go and give uh, talks about East Asia, I'm often asked, well, what what's, what, what's the best fertility rate? What is the optimal fertility rate? And I normally just make a number up. I say, oh, it's probably about 1.8. But I thought, actually, what, we'll actually kind of, maybe let's have a go at trying to find out in some, under certain settings, what might be considered to be an optimal fertility rate. Um, now, this is very important. I am not saying that people should have 1.73 children. This is at a societal level. So this is if you're on, a pure, on, a, on an economic model, okay? Um, and this relates, this does relate to population policy. And because I think that there are significant issues with the replacement rate, which we need to take into account when we're trying to reassess this. The first is that replacement rate doesn't assume migration. Uh, the second is that it does not really factor in improvements in mortality and changes in the life course. And the third is that it has this kind of view of population uh, typologies or the structure of population, everything else apart from age, being static. And to give you a, a, uh, an idea about this, uh, I want to talk about the trade-off between ageing and skills. If we consider the, the path of development, and we consider that as a general rule, when populations age, their skill uh, setup also changes as well. So you take the example of Korea, um, which is you know, as one of the most, uh, one of the fastest, and now one of the oldest um, uh, populations in the world. And of course, in 1970, a, a traditional uh, population pyramid there, which is predominantly made up of um, you know, a significant gender uh, divide as well between um, uh, females on, on this side, males on this side, females being predominantly um, with no education further on. But then you see this big change. Now, if these, these colours weren't there, you would just say, oh, it's ageing rapidly, disaster. But what you've got is a shift from a primarily uh, 
primary educated population to a primarily secondary educated population to, and the projections suggest by 2050, to be in a, prim a primarily a tertiary educated population. And this, of course, has tremendous consequences for uh, labour productivity, for skills, and the kind of economy that, you, that, that, that the country will need. So when we um, are doing this exercise then, we're trying to take into account these changing skill levels. And rather than, basically what we're saying is that the way of doing it now, which is just taking simple dependency ratios, may not be adequate for our purpose. So what have we done? Uh, we calculated different education-weighted uh, dependency ratios, and we fixed the pension costs in at 66, and we've done all kinds of sensitivity analysis, which are both in the book and in papers, endless reams of paper, which you can see um, all about this, graphs and, and equations and so on. Uh, using the age, uh, education structures in 2010 and projecting this up to 2030 and then holding it constant. And what we actually found um, is that, of course, in the short run, if you want your dependency uh, ratios to be um, as small as possible, of course, you don't want any children. This is obvious, you know, because you're, you're creating, you're trying, you, know, you're, you, you don't want people at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, but, of course, in the long run, this means that the population will age extremely quickly. So that's why the, you have this strange kind of curve in terms of the ideal um, fertility rate. Now, I mean, I've only got a couple of minutes, so I'm not going to go into depth about this. I'm just going to give you the headline. We think that um, in terms of maximising dependency ratios and keeping them at an optimum level uh, from an economic perspective, you can actually, taking into account future changes in uh, education and skills, we think that an optimal fertility would be below replacement rate and would be closer to, it would be about 1.78 for the EU, for EU27. Now, of course, this is only on a kind of economic, um, uh, you know, skills, pensions, uh, social welfare level. Now, if we talk about climate change, then of course it's completely different. And um, really, you know, the optimal fertility from a climate change perspective is zero forever. We just don't exist. And then we go out of the equation and then things probably get a little bit better. But if we think about optimal fertility within a, a kind of within a, a, a reasonable parameters of, um, of uh, our future uh, economic society and the way that we exist, Again, if we're assuming higher emissions uh, in the future, which go hand in hand normally with increased um, uh, skill sets and, and, and economic development, then obviously optimal fertility would be lower than that from a, from a purely from an environmental perspective. So to conclude, therefore, I think that it's extremely important that there's a much better understanding for the reasons for very low fertility, uh, both within democracy, democracy, <laughs> it's your fault, um, both within demography and within the kind of uh, the, the, in policy and the public discourse. And I think it's really important to move away from a Eurocentric view of fertility transition and fertility uh, change. I, I, I really think that the uh, replacement rate is a profoundly unhelpful concept and dividing line, particularly for countries with very low fertility rates, that it creates a kind of unrealistic end point at which if, you're, if you don't reach it, then you're in trouble. Um, uh, where are we? 
uh, as I say, ageing societies are almost always skilled economies, which we have to take into account as well. And then finally, um, there are clearly conflicting interests in terms of how you define what uh, an optimal fertility is. And I'm, I completely accept that this is, a, is in this some sense, it's a, as with most of this kind of thing, it's somewhat of a pointless academic exercise. But I, I hope you may have found it um, of, of uh, some interest. And thank you very much for your um, time. <laughs> Well, we've been talking about values, and I would like to continue that theme in arguing that values are, in the future in particular, but to some extent already now, the driving factor in determining women's choices between a focus and a priority on family life, and that would include raising children, and therefore potentially having more children, and a focus and a priority on career in which almost certainly children will have very low priority, or potentially for some women trying to combine the two. And this is a conclusion that I have drawn in a book called Work Lifestyle Choices in the 21st Century, uh, which sets out what is now called preference theory, which is an evidence-based theory about the choices women make between family work and employment. And the key argument has been that feminists have argued that as soon as we had equal opportunities and equal access to the public, public life, public positions, the workforce and so on, women would be choosing careers in the same way as men. And I wasn't sure that that was right, so I reviewed the latest literature on the choices women make after the Equal Opportunities Revolution, after the contraceptive revolution gave women real control over their fertility and real options to have careers instead of staying at home. And the evidence is that women divide into three groups. And career-oriented, careerist women are a minority, not the majority by any means, as feminists have long believed. They are between, they're about 25% in, on average in a country that doesn't have policies that bias their choice. But it varies a great deal from 10% in countries like Sweden to 30% in uh, countries that have strong policies to support uh, careerist orientations amongst women and full-time continuous work throughout life for women. But then there's another minority which has been completely overlooked and which is still there. And again, this is about 25% on average um, in countries with no strong policy bias, but it varies between 10% to 30% again of women who are family-oriented and um, home-centered, and they do work. It's not that they never work, but when they work, it's normally to support their family role, to provide more money for their children, to spend on their children. And their priority in life is having children and family life, and they tend to have the largest families. 
And then there's a very large majority group which are in the middle. I call them adaptive. They can be called all sorts of things. It's a label. Um, and this is women who are trying to have the best of both worlds to combine paid work and family life, family work, and therefore have around the average number of children. These three groups have now been identified in pretty well all industrial societies, modern societies, where either survey data existed that you could uh, do secondary analysis to see if it fits the pattern or not, or whether people have actually done new studies. So the pattern is there. The question is, does it predict fertility? Well, it predicts employment patterns for sure. Careerist women are most likely to be in full-time continuous employment. Home-centered women are most likely to be not working or else only in part-time jobs, if at all. Um, it predicts fertility for Britain. It doesn't predict it for countries like Spain, for example, where you just have very low fertility, and it doesn't predict... Well, it predicts it a little bit for Spain, but not very well. It doesn't predict it in a country like the Czech Republic, where there was a special study to test it, um, partly because in the Czech Republic, everyone has two children, I'm told. I mean, that is such a social norm that there's very hard, hardly any variation. So it only predicts it in countries where there is variation. But it, it is important to recognize that you can't devise policy based on a stereotype of what choices women are making in a, in, with the aim of raising fertility if that stereotype is completely wrong. And the stereotype at the moment is that all women want to work as well as having uh, children and family life. And that's true for the majority because the majority are in the middle trying to combine the two. But that doesn't mean to say they're careerist women. And an awful lot of policy is based on assumptions about women's choices and preferences which are simply not supported by the evidence. And that's why I think an awful lot of the policies that have been deployed so far have failed because they're designed for women who don't really exist or they're designed for women who exist but who are only a minority and therefore it has no effect on the majority of women. So I'm saying that if policy wants to alter the fertility rate, you need to have it based on concrete evidence about the choices and preferences women have, and in the modern world, there are three groups, and they have very, very different preferences and very different responses to policy, and there's several studies um, that uh, point in that direction. And this means that the European Commission's focus on Sweden as the social utopia, the solution to all problems in every country, in my view, just doesn't work. Uh, I would also question, and I set the reasons, the evidence in the, out in the chapter in the book, that actually there is a Swedish illusion. They haven't achieved gender equality, as they so often claim. What they've been running is a pronatalist policy to maintain high fertility because they didn't want to have immigrant populations uh, polluting their ethnic purity. I think there was a real political... Um, agenda behind all of that, even if it's called gender equality policies. And I've been asked, uh, are there policies, concrete policies that can, that can work? 
because so many haven't. And just one that I describe in the, in the chapter is the home care allowance, which has been um, initiated in Finland, copied in Norway very successfully. Um, a, an equivalent of it has been deployed in France for some time because they do have pronatalist policies. And it's a policy that simply pays any parent who stays at home to raise their children a small salary. It is a small salary, it is not a big salary, but it gives recognition to the job of raising children in a way that isn't uh, recognized in countries where the emphasis is on put them into childcare, put them into childcare, put them to childcare. And in Sweden, it's not even recommended to put them into childcare. It's almost become a legal obligation for parents to put children into childcare. So it's a, it contrasts with the childcare emphasis. But all of these uh, policies do have the potential to affect fertility. The home care allowance has been shown to raise fertility because it increases the um, third child, families having a third and higher order uh, births. You have very little scope for influence on uh, families who want the, the standard two-child family because that is so ubiquitous and very often parents do want a, one of each, a boy and a girl. However, emphasis, any emphasis on careerist women, I would argue, is a complete waste of time because careerist women around the evidence is that around half of them remain child-free by choice. Their emphasis on a career means that they're simply not going to have children. So any kind of policy that tries to encourage them to have more children is a waste of time since they're not going to have any at all. So I've been looking simply at what women want, what policies women want, and the way modern options and opportunities in the modern uh, economies and knowledge economies are giving women more options and how they actually use them. And they're not using them in the way that quite a lot of, I would say, particularly European Commission policy, certainly British policy and some other countries have been assuming. So my argument is essentially a plea for more evidence-based policy. I know the British government and the European Commission have been claiming that, but it's very clearly uh, in evidence that they haven't actually been practicing that, no matter how much they say they do. Thank you. Um, okay, I'm, uh, I'm John Parker. I've been off just to say a couple of words uh, to, to wrap up, to segue into the Q&A. Um, uh, let me just put, try to put the book into what I think of the, sort of the broader context of demographic <coughs> Say a couple of things about the way I, uh, what, what I think are the interesting and distinctive characteristics of it and and then uh, raise uh, just a couple of questions. I mean, I've, most demography, most sort of traditional demography focuses on basically kind of pure population you know, categories, on cohorts, what's driving um, you know, the total fertility rate, what's, what's, what's driving the different uh, sizes of um, population cohorts, and if there's a sort of a broader question uh, that, that demographers sort of have something to say about, it's usually um, about the state of economics, the classic one here is the 
you know, that, that it's, I think, pretty widely recognized that the demographic dividend does make a difference to national income, to GDP. Um, there's some interesting work at the moment which says that also that the state of GDP makes a bit of a difference to uh, the demographic patterns because um, uh, there's I mean, fairly convincing evidence that the fertility rate's slowing down um, and that slowdown seems to begin just about when Lehman Brothers goes bust. So, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of a, you know, some link, we're not quite sure what it is, um, you know, between the state of the economy and uh, people's choice of when they get married and when they have children. And that's sort of the general uh, kind of traditional demographic view, de de sort of, that's the sphere of demography. Um, and one of the things I really like about this book is that it, it widens that out quite a long way. Um, and it talks about things which aren't, you know, major parts of the tra traditional uh, sphere of demographers, but kind of sounds to me, uh, you know, likely to be important in whether people, you know, the number of children people have, which is things like, uh, as Eric talks about, religion, you know, the intensity of religious feeling will, will say whether you go out and multiply or not. Um, kind of, it talks in an interesting way, really interesting way to me about, you know, about sort of public opinion, if you like, that's too, that's too kind of narrow and sophological a thing. It's, you know, do children bring happiness? That seems like a really important question about the influence on demographic patterns, but it's not traditionally part of the demographer's sort of sphere of interest. Um, education, uh, Stuart was talking uh, a little bit about that, you know, the, the, the respect in which education influences um, sort of the, the well, the, the kind of demographic choices and it, whether a country needs replacement facility is influenced by how skilled uh, and how educated people are. All those things seem to be interesting, um, and I really like that about the book. One of the things, though, I think is that it focuses kind of more on the influence of those, I call them non-demographic factors. Um, it focuses more on the influence of those non-demographic factors on the population than the other way around. I mean, it, it talks about you know, religious intensity causing people to have more children, very, uh, very simple level. Um, you know, the sense of whether a child, whether children are going to bring happiness influences family size. So, uh, I, I'm not complaining about that, but I'm just saying that the, these, the, it's sort of talking about what may be only like part of the feedback loop. Because I'd like to know a bit more about the influence of demographic patterns on these non-demographic um, uh, characteristics. So I, I, I refer to the demographic dividend, which is an example of demography influencing you know, GDP and investment decisions and all that kind of thing. Um, but actually, I suspect that you know the, the, the sort of the overall uh, what, what people see in the society, number of you know the typical number of families, number of families all you know their parents are having and themselves or their uh, uh, sort of peers are having, may probably influences their decisions about how many children to have, and also influences other things. There's there's just there's been a huge new study barely begun to get to grips with from the World Bank, which looks in incredible detail at 
sort of men's and women's attitudes in, in, in developing countries. And you know, it, it, it does seem to draw a link that, um, and to put it very crudely, it, 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 the authors are studying the hate what I'm about to say, but, but it does seem to show that sort of family, gender roles are a little bit more equal in smaller families. Maybe it's not surprising, um, but it does seem to be the case. And so I find that area of the kind of influence of traditional demographic factors um, on non-traditional ones interesting. I'd like to kind of know uh, a bit more about that. The other thing that struck me about this book, which I, which I liked and was interested in, is it seems to provide some evidence of the, of the extent to which sort of low, low fertility is here to stay in some countries. Um, you know, that somehow fertility rates, you know, way below replacement um, are fairly stable. I mean, I think 30, 20 years ago, he'd said, you know, a bunch of countries in Europe have got uh, fertility rates of 1.3. Everyone said, well, that's not going to um, but, I mean, I think the notion that, that your notion that education in some senses justifies below replacement fertility, you know, your, your, yours is at like 1.78, but I mean, you know, you could argue uh, that, it, you know, that, that it could be lower, right? I mean, it could be below replacement, way below replacement fertility. Um, it, you know, it's the more the, it's more sustainable at higher education levels. Um, the chapter on 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 sort of expectation, parents' expectations about children basically says that it's the first child that really brings the happiness in the family. Second and third children don't seem to matter so much. I mean, on the face of it, that would mean that in terms of providing happiness to to your, to the family, a you know fertility rate of one is fine. Um, and on Eric's point about religion, uh, well, obviously at least in Europe, you know we we're not, we are seeing continuing kind of trend towards secularisation. Would you know all things being equal, I would suggest you know that must presumably mean that. Uh, you know, you get a lower fertility rate, right? I mean, all, as I said, absolutely all things be equal. So all those things suggest that um, you could you could continue to have fertility of you know 1.5 plus or minus you know two points. Um, the only thing about that is what one I think that's a coherent story, uh, and this is what I would like to sort of a bit more research on is manifestly it hasn't happened. In large, I mean, in several North European countries. They, we, because Britain is one of them, came down to low fertility rate. I think Britain was hit about 1.6, something like that. Well, we are now up at 1.9, and that's true in France, it's true, and it's true in most of Scandinavia. And, you know, the usual explanation I've always had was well, it's to do with public policy, you know, it's to do with uh, sort of these, these are countries that have taken the kind of work life balance most seriously. But, you know, I think. Catherine Hacking's chapter actually shows that that's just somebody looking at <laughs> looking at it. You know, it, it's a plausible sounding story, but if you look at it more carefully, it may not be right. You know, some of these policies work okay, but you know, many of them don't. So I, I don't know. I would just I think the chat I think the book raises an interesting question about low low fertility, 
which I, I'd like more answers to, actually. I mean, uh, you know, if, if it's true that 1.7 or, you know, 1.8 is a, is a perfectly rational TFR, well, you, is Britain and America, are we doing the wrong thing here? So those are my, those are my, those are my kind of thoughts based on reading. I think it's a great book. I really like it, and um, I recommend it to anyone who has read it.